Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information, and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus. Brendan here with Mark as usual, episode one. 67 167 friday 11th of december 2020 mark and it's getting closer to the holiday period and i think do you close your clinic over the christmas new year break mark or not only for the public holidays we're open for the the um i think there's three is there three normal days between christmas and new year something like that yes yes um well we we have a week off. Basically. <laughs> we have a half day for the Christmas Eve, twenty fourth, and then we start back again around about the second of January or so. It may even be the fourth this year because I think we have the weekend. So I'm looking forward to that very muchly, Mark. Very muchly. We used to open up years ago um, for the Christmas New Year break, but in our area um, where the clinic is, we had. Fair number of people go away. They go down the beach, I think, for Christmas. So it was either very dead and not worth just sitting there without seeing anybody, or somebody would turn up with a hit by car at five to six or whatever just before the clinic is about to close. So it, it just didn't work. So and there is we the, turn the, f- the emergency hospitals have made that exactly. difference too. So so you guys in the big city have that all going for you. Yes. So we turn the phones over to the emergency centre and I sit out on the back porch, Mark, on the deck and uh, have a little beverage or two and read a book and fall asleep. That's the plan anyway, so I'm hoping hoping that's what will happen again this season. Um, although you're not supposed to call it Christmas, are you? You call it holiday season, don't you, just to be non-denominational. Um, so what's up, Mark? What have you been up to? Well, Any interesting cases I, or I animals was, you've been seeing? I was alluding uh, before we started recording to the fact that we've seen a spike in a particular sort of patient, Brendan, and um, and I was I was interested in your opinion, in your experience. Um, we, as you know, we get to see lots and lots of uh, bearded dragons, but particularly these last couple of months, we've we've uh, had a real surge in the number of the um, silkbacks, the reduced scalation mutation. Um, the the uh, I suppose it's the case that. Um, that these lizards are now reaching that sort of an age where they're young adults and adults, the the, the uh, larger cohort of them that have been distributed to the pet keeping population, and um, and yeah, they they're a headache. I was thinking, Brendan, we've we've um we've had some that have had health issues with their skin and um, with parasite problems, and they're a whole new ball game. And I was saying to you that I thought, um, I don't know. We we take them on and we work with them and we try and give them their best life. Um, but I don't know, Brendan. I don't know whether it's the right thing to have these lizards um, uh, with their fragile immune systems and their people love to <laughs> like to mess around, don't they? I, I asked that bloke not to do that after he did it. Yes, but obviously my powers. Is your son home? Is he? <laughs> 
your son's home for dinner, is he? Um, yes, the humans like to mess around with with um, all these variations of all these um, pets, don't they? And they like to try and breed all these different morphs and different colours and different, you know, albino and amelanistic animals and leave it alone, leave it alone. Yeah, um, leave it alone. And, um, gee, when, when we used to see all the pictures of all the, especially with the reptiles, of all the um, variations that were being bred in in Europe and America, I thought, gee, it's going to happen here soon, and it didn't take that long, did it, to to that whole process um, to occur here. So, yes, we don't see too many of that, that particular um, um, type of bearded dragon, Mark, but, yeah, I'm always wary and leery um, when I see something that's not a natural sort of colour or look um, with these animals. And, yeah, that hybrid vigour has a lot to, um, going for it, doesn't it? It's like the crossbred dogs, you know. They, It's good to have a bit of um, vigour in them and um, outbreeding, Mark. I, I believe in outbreeding <laughs> very strongly, um, yes. So, um, so these ones you've been seeing, so what have they come up with? They've, they're, they're full of coccidia, are they, and they're just not doing well and they're, they're, you're struggling to keep them alive? Exactly. Pretty much summed it up completely. Where they they do have um uh, particular hydration problems. I think um uh, you know they're essentially. I think it's a good analogy to think of them as bearded dragons that have been turned into frogs um, in terms of the permeability of their skin, but they haven't been given any of the other adaptations that frogs have to having highly permeable skin. Um, and as a consequence, they um, very promptly get dehydrated at the drop of a hat. So, um, And that's just one of the many problems. So if they're losing fluid because of a coccidia infection and the fact they've developed diarrhoea, then they're a struggle. We've really been having trouble with them and people as as is always the way i suppose with these color mutations and um, different versions of animals that are a little bit more unusual people do get very very attached to them um and um so i do sometimes feel like i'm i don't know beating my head against a brick wall and do you know what sort of price these are sold for have you asked the clients? Uh, I, I think, so, like, I don't know what it is in Victoria at the moment, but I think you probably, be, you know, between, for your normal inland bearded dragon, you're probably, I don't know, 50 to 100 Australian dollars at the moment would yes. be the going rate. Um, I think a really colourful silk back is probably between 500 and $1,000. Um, and <laughs> To have something that ends up costing you that amount or more with vet fees and then ends up being put down or, or dying anyway. <laughs> you're you're, you're uh, like summarising things really well. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes you have to be realistic, Mark, and you have to call a spade a spade. Um, okay, let's jump into a, a review. You said you have a, a review for us and... You haven't told me what it is. No, I haven't. Have you? Um, it's one of the things about our reviews, Brendan. I like the fact that we do some, you know, veterinary practice things, but I like that whole balance, you know, the the work-life balance. We've got to review some things that are not always to do with the veterinary practice. And um, 
and I have been to see the movie. I've been to the movies. Um, uh, so uh, we went, Kate and I went to see um, a movie uh, called Rams. So I don't know whether you've heard about this one. It has a couple of unusual characteristics, this movie. Um, uh, it is, you know, a story about sheep farmers. It's a quintessentially Australian movie, um, except that it's a remake of an Icelandic movie about exactly the same topic, which just goes to show those things that we think make us iconic and different aren't always as unique as we think they might be. The shorts for this movie, Brendan, they uh, um, they got Kate and I in because, I don't know, we are having a bit of a long day and the shorts made it uh, seem like this was going to be uh, an hilarious movie. Um, uh, Sam Neill and Michael Caton, two famous Australian actors who, well, they're... they're they're, they're pretty funny blokes in general. Um, they have a, a, a CV that includes a fair number of um, funny movies. But the shorts for this one made it seem like, you know, Sheep Farmers, Australian Outbacker, we had had a bit of the, the potential to be maybe a bit slapstick and comedic. But, um, but that was, um, despite the shorts, it was nothing like that. Um, it was, um, it really was an excellent movie, uh, exploring, you know, some, some of the, uh, more difficult aspects of masculinity and, uh, brotherly love. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I thought it was an excellent movie. Um, I thought it was, um, there were a couple of things that, um, rubbed me the wrong way without, um, you know, spoil, spoiling the, the whole process of the movie. But one of the dr- driving dramatic aspects of the movie was, um, the, uh, was Ovignoni's disease, OJD, um, and the um, massive disrespect for uh, biosecurity that was displayed through the movie was a bit of a uh, a bit of a sore point for me. But um, outside of that, I thought it was an outstanding Australian movie, Brendan. Well, you'll have to give me your score, Mark. You can't get away with that. I need a score out of ten. Out of ten, I think I would go for. Ooh, I'm I'm hitting it at um at an even eight. Brendan, 8.0. 8 out of 10. And I've just been looking it up while you have been commenting on it. Uh, mixed reviews. Some um, some critics have really liked it. A lot of moviegoers have enjoyed it. Some have absolutely hated it. IMDb it has a rating of 6.7 out of 10. Gee, not far off what you um, suggested. And Rotten Tomatoes, Tomatoes, um, Let's see what they say. They give it, oh, they give it 100% um, because <laughs> there's only- not enough people. Yeah, there's not enough people. There's six people have rated it so far. I thought, gee, they really liked it. I reckon there was a bit of a phenomenon with some of these movies where the shorts, it's, it's, um, I think the marketers sometimes, um, lead to disappointment. If you'd been expecting, on the shorts, you would have expected this to be like a bit of a thigh slapper, um, and that certainly wasn't the case. And so, I think if you were, were going to have a bit of a laugh, um, then then certainly this this there were only a few moments that got you to have a chortle, and much of it was making you have a more more deep reflection. So, I can understand why punters were a bit disappointed, Brendan. Yes, well, I may watch it. 
streaming mark, I think. <laughs> I'm, I'm too scared to go in the cinema still. Um, so tell me about the experience. What did you have to uh, – was it – I presume they had – a COVID-safe policy oh, yes. in the theatre. Yep, they, um, it, and it is a very, you know, the world is a different place. And even though we've got, uh, I think we've got no community transmission cases in New South Wales and we think, I think we've got 13 or so cases in quarantine from people that have come back, where the, 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 we still are very COVID-safe in everything that we do. And um, going to the theatre involved, putting on the... the um, um, the face mask being they had uh, specific designated seats that made sure that everyone was more than a couple of metres apart. Um, they uh, asked us to, they, there was no leaving any rubbish behind. They insisted that we take everything out and put it in the bin so that people didn't have to go in and clean. What, so Kate took you out of the course I wasn't yes. left behind. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Um, yes, no, I think it'll be a while before... I head in there, and I—I I must admit, I do enjoy sitting at home with my little setup here, and um, I've got a nice little sort of home theatre setup here, which I thoroughly enjoy. It's a little bit of a hobby, so um, you'll have to come and watch one next time you're here, Mark. Um, as long as you stay 1.5 metres away from me, then um, all will be good. Excellent. Okay, so there's a there's a review of Rams the movie, and we'll have a link to it at vetgurus.com. You go there and look at the show notes and we'll have a link to all the news articles as well. And speaking of news articles, Mark, you're, you have the first one and, um, yeah, very suitable for you. It is. A, um, a, what have you got? Well, it's a bit of um, – it goes with a bit of a theme for our um, our podcast this evening that um, it's a book review, Brendan. Um, it's a book written by um, Emily Willingham um, and – well, this, I was trying to think of some way that I could, you know, segue gently, introduce or uh, have some form of funny, real, you know, introduction. But I'm just going to go straight in. It's a book about penises, um, and um, and of course it. Uh, what's that? I like the quote that um, Emily takes her readers on an historical and evolutionary and often hilarious tour of the penises of the planet. She says, nothing gets clicks like stories about dicks. (laughs) (laughs) That, that, you know, my interest in, um, in marketing and the, I don't, the present. (laughs) Yes, you do. I'm very interested in marketing (laughs) and the, uh, and the things that trigger clicks. (laughs) Um, she goes on to say, even if it's a, Penis that's 1.5 millimeters long and a million years old, and uh, and so she's put the stories of a whole variety of uh, of penises in her book Fallacy, spelled P H A L A C Y. And in this book, um, you know, her her target is to um, put to rest so many of those myths or stories, and um, you know, just come up with the facts about. Uh, penises across the animal kingdom um there and there's a whole there's probably two great themes the first one here is that um she comes across a whole series of uh words that might be um you know intramitter 
is another word for the organ that passes the um, the copulatory tube. Um, the um, what's one of the other ones? Of course, the bacula. Um, and the poor tuatara gets a message of um, a mention, of course, because it's uh, it's one of the um, animals that does not have a, um, a, a, a yeah penis. So, um, so yeah, a wonderful uh, text. I could see this being uh, I, the other thing that I thought about uh, this book. I could, you know, I think she's hit the nail on the head in terms of marketing. I think she does know what is going to get clicks. If my TikTok account is any guide, my FYP page on TikTok seems to um, to be an awful focus of this sort of stuff, Brendan. But she um, does spend a bit of time in this one, in this book, looking into um, where the penis goes. So there is a bit of discussion about the vagina, and I think she's missed an opportunity to have two volumes, and she may just have crammed a little bit too much into one volume, Brendan. Well, I don't know what to say, Mark. Um, I just can't wait for it to arrive, and <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Um, I've got to, I've got to finish reminds- with this. The um, She does say... Um, the penis is not the throbbing obelisk of all masculinity. It is time to decenter the organ and focus on the person and their behaviour. The penis is not unimportant, but it is not the measure of the man. Ah, uh, well, that's very, very deep. <laughs> and I'm trying to find that. Is that in the article that you? <laughs> yes, it's um, the last paragraph. Ah, is that hard to look at? Ah. Well, there you go. So, Fallacy by Emily Willingham, and it sounds like a title we put in our podcast, doesn't it, Mark, Um, the way we like our little puns there. Well, my new story is nothing quite so amusing, Mark. It's about the UK government has been extending the Badger Cull to 11 new areas and they've issued controlled licences for those areas in a bid. It's to control tuberculosis in cattle Um, and the controversy is that the the cull involves several counties in the United Kingdom and initially um, they did state previously they were pledging to phase out the cull in favour of vaccinating the badgers instead. Um, And so there's a bit of an uproar, Mark, um, that they've sort of turned back on that and uh, the decision um, is being called a huge betrayal of public trust by the government, according to um, some, uh, some comments. And this includes an open letter, Mark, interestingly enough, that was published in the Veterinary Record, which is the journal of the Royal College of Veterinary Scientists, um, signed by veterinary surgeon Ian McGill and primatologist Jane Goodall, uh, we all know, and naturalist Chris Packham and others, which are urging the Prime Minister of the UK, Boris Johnson, to intervene and prevent the expansion of the Badger Cull. And uh, they applauded the government's stated aim of phasing out Badger Culling, but it appears to be in stark contrast to their apparent intention, they wrote. Um, So, and they're concerned about, um, they said to to Boris, um, you'll be remembered as the Prime Minister who presided over the greatest slaughter of a protected animal 
in a living memory. So we'll see what happens with that, Mark. Um, as bad as that is, uh, Brendan, as bad as that. I was going to make a comment about COVID and, and humans dying, but um, about another country, but um, I, won't, I won't go there. I was, gonna, <laughs> yes, I was just going to say that um, as much as I respect those people and as much as I believe what they say to be true, that it is the greatest slaughter of a protected animal in living memory, I am disagreeing with them about that being what Boris Johnson is remembered for. Yes, he'll be remembered for his hairstyle, um, no doubt, more than anything else I expect, Mark. Well, we've got a a very special main topic this week, Mark, and I know you've been looking forward to it and so have I, and that's an interview with Laura, um, who we've had on can't remember the 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 number of the podcast. I'll have to look it up. Um, she's produced. Um, she's an author, and um, I think what we'll do we'll cross to the interview, Mark, and then we'll come back and wrap things up. So over to the interview with Laura. So we're very privileged to have Laura here today. And Laura, you've been on our podcast before, and we reviewed one of your previous books, and. This time we're reviewing Extraordinary Old Dogs, which is a really uplifting, I was going to say novel, it's not a novel, it's true stories about old dogs and senior dogs and, and what they've been up to and some some stories that are a little bit sad, but a lot of them are amazingly uplifting. And the one that really impressed me and why I'm hesitating here is because we started recording this particular interview with Laura and um, I then realised I hadn't hit the record button. So this is take number two um, for poor Laura. So um, she's been very nice putting up with putting up with us for a number um, take number two. So we were just chatting about Howley, which is I think the chapter number two or chapter number three, and it was certainly an extraordinary old dog, Howley the Surfing Labrador, Laura, and you were going to chat to us a little bit about the story of Howley and the thing that really amazed me was that Howley was not only a dog that enjoyed the surf but also was a fantastic therapy dog. So do you want to fill us in on that, Laura? Yes, absolutely. And as I said in take one, congratulations on pronouncing Howley correctly (laughs) because it's a tricky one. It's a traditional Hawaiian name that looks like Hayoli and most people, myself included, the first time I spoke to his owners, don't pronounce it right. So, um, you know, that's one hurdle overcome already. Um, But, yes, Howley uh, was a surfing dog, um, and I mean that in the most literal sense. He used to go out on a surfboard in the ocean with his owners, Kim and John Murphy, who live still live in Ventura Beach in California. Um, they had been surfers for a number of years before Howley told them, um, as dogs are wont to do, that he wanted to have a crack at it. So, you know, sure enough, they let him clamber up onto the board and he was an absolute natural um, and became quite a fixture on Ventura Beach. You know, people would spot him on the weekends and, and sure enough, a, a crowd would kind of gather to watch this incredible surfing dog. Um, and one day, one of the members of that crowd uh, 
mentioned to Kim and John that there are actual competitions for surfing dogs, which they, of course, weren't aware of. It's a fairly niche kind of pastime. But once they discovered that that was a thing, um, they entered all the dog surfing competitions across the US and Howley indeed won most of them in his time. And it was through his participation in those competitions that Howley came to the attention of a really amazing charity called A Walk on Water. And what they do is use what they call surf therapy to improve the lives of children with disabilities. And some of those disabilities are physical, some of them are intellectual, um, but regardless of the kind of challenges the child is dealing with, the people behind a walk on water firmly believe that their lives can be improved through surfing. So, they asked Howley to come along to one of their surf therapy days and he did and he was such a hit with the kids that they asked him to come back and then back again and back again and before long Howley was the official ambassador for A Walk on Water and his presence at those surfing days and his involvement with the charity as a whole, I mean the impact that he had on the lives of these kids really can't be overstated. I mean, you know, there were athletes involved with the charity who had been non-verbal their entire lives. And then after meeting Howley and spending time with him and getting out on the board with him, they started to speak. Um, you know, it, it was that profound and that incredible. There was a, a little boy with Down syndrome who was involved with the charity who was terrified of water. Like he would be dragged along to these surf days absolutely against his will and would refuse to even put a toe in the ocean. But once he saw Howley surfing, he started to want to go in the water. And before long, he would get on a board with Howley and start to surf himself. So the changes he made were really tangible. Um, and yeah, he was so important to the lives of these kids. And he did pass away earlier this year after a battle with cancer, but Kim and John are still very involved with a walk on water and the legacy that Howley left behind is one that will last forever, really. I mean, he won't be forgotten and the role that he played in the lives of these kids will continue. It's amazing. It, yeah, it was, a, uh, it was a, a fantastic story there and, and I think every every mutt or dog or, or, or extraordinary old dog that you have in your book, um, there's photos of them there, and you, we've got a photo there of Howley on the, on the surfboard there as well. So it was a great, great little story there. And just going back a little bit, Laura, um, we I didn't sort of introduce um, you to our listeners. For those of you who didn't hear you um, during our previous episode, um, you've I think you mentioned off air or during take number one that you're up to. Um, novel number nine and number 10 you've already signed the contract for that's fantastic so my next question is and I may have asked this during our previous interview what's the process of of your writing process do you sort of sit down and say okay I'm going to write between 9 and 11 in the morning or or x number of words per day or do you just go with the flow and some days you write till the sun goes down or what, how do you go about it I mean I wish my process was as organized <laughs> suggested there um I'm I'm a terrible procrastinator. It's my worst failing as an author and probably as a human being. <laughs> um, and I also have a young child and so I can only work kind of during school hours and I have three dogs, two of whom are elderly and have various health issues that need frequent attention. And so my 
my creative process is pretty chaotic, <laughs> to put it mildly. Um, the way it normally works is I have about a year to work on a book and I think I'm going to be really organized and get myself into gear well in advance. And then for various reasons that doesn't happen. And all of a sudden it's three months until the book's due and I haven't started it. <laughs> um, yes. And I really bemoaned that about myself for so long and wishing that I was different, but I just don't seem to be able to be different. And my editor said to me once, just understand that this is your process, you know, just accept that this is how you work and, and kind of make peace with it. So I'm trying, I'm trying a little harder to be okay with the way I work. I think that's pretty common. I mean, Mark and I have had a bit to do with technical writing, vet, veterinary um, textbooks and chapters, and I think it's exactly the same process that we're given a deadline and it may even be two years out and it's always a last-minute scramble and you're trying to finish your chapter, you know, and it's due midnight um, yeah. tonight type thing. So I, I don't think it's an un unusual thing, but I, I'd, I'd certainly envy somebody who can just sit down and just start start writing. It's that whole romantic idea of, you know, you're an author and you'd, you'd, you'd be sat there in the deck chair um, oh, yeah. looking, out, or in your looking out across the ocean and, and, and going for a swim and then coming back out and writing for a little bit and getting a huge paycheck at the end of it. Yeah, that's right. I think most, um, you know, romantic portrayals of authors aren't authors who have families and jobs and <laughs> commitments and all these other things that real human beings tend to have. <laughs> Yes. Now, Mark, you had a, a question for Laura. I did. I'm, I'm, did I was. Um. I was. I really enjoyed this, uh, Laura, and I, I reflected on um, the last Rescuers was the the last book of yours that we um, had a read of and talk about. In Rescuers, I remember the sort of I don't know that it got me that the themes in Rescuers was were more about what the dogs did for us and gave to us. Um, but this one is much more of a two-way street. There seems to be, um, you know, obviously the dogs are older, they have uh, health issues and there's a lot, a lot more discussion of those health issues and the uh, troubles the dogs have gone through. Mm. Um, but it, it seems to be that two-way street, what the dogs give people and what people give back to these aged dogs. And was that something that you noticed? It was. Um, and to be honest, it, it was quite an intentional thing. Um, I mean, all my dog books, um, so I've written nine books in total, three of them are fiction novels, and then six of them are these nonfiction collections of stories about amazing dogs. And in all of the dog books, they're about dogs, obviously, but more than that, they're about the human animal relationship and that bond and how significant and how profound that bond can be in people's lives. So I certainly think that when you're writing about old dogs, it's definitely more of a reciprocal kind of arrangement because, you know, the dog in many cases has given their whole life to one owner and they've loved them from the time they were a tiny little, you know, 10 or 12 week old ball of fluff until hopefully they're in their early or, or mid or even late teens. And I firmly believe on a personal level that, you know, we, when we take on a dog, we should take on that dog for its entire life. And therefore it's a real privilege to be in a dog's life and to have care of a dog towards the end of its life. It's kind of like the least we can do, you know, to repay a dog for the love and the, the unconditional loyalty that it's given us for however many years. So that was something that I definitely wanted to highlight in this book in particular 
um, not only that we can have that relationship through a dog's entire life, but that we should and that we owe that to them. It's the very least that we owe them, in my opinion. So, yes, that was certainly something I noticed and something that I really tried to highlight with these stories. And it definitely came across. The other thing that I, that, um, seemed to be a little bit thematic was the, um, a number of the stories involved, um, you know, a period of absence or loss where the, either the dog had gone missing or, um, in some cases had, you know, I, I can't, the, the, there was one of the dogs that was surrendered and, um, and then later came back to, into the life of the, um, and microchips played a role in confirming the identity of the dogs repeatedly. Was this something that you noticed? Um, no, I hadn't actually noticed that. Um, I mean, of course, in the individual stories, I, I was aware that that those things played a role. But you're right, that does happen in quite a few of the stories. There's 15 stories in the book, and that does come through in several of them. But no, I hadn't picked up on that. But what you say about there being an absence in many of the stories um, is certainly true. And the story you were referencing there about the dog that was surrendered that's the story of a dog named Chloe Bear who was owned by a little girl named Nicole uh, in Pennsylvania in the US and her family circumstances changed and Chloe had to be rehomed but Nicole never forgot her. She never really got over the loss of her little four-legged best friend and then a decade or so later when Nicole was, you know, grown up and married and had a family of her own, she decided the time was right to adopt a senior dog So she adopted a little dog named Chloe purely because the name was the name of her childhood dog that she'd loved and lost. And this little dog looked a bit like the dog that she had had. And it was only after spending a few days with her that she realized it was the same dog. It was her childhood dog returned to her. Um, And I just love that story. It's one of my favorite ones in the book. Um, I definitely tend to prefer the stories that have that kind of element of fate or destiny about them. And that's because I truly believe that the dog picks the owner. I've always said that about all of my books and about all of the dogs that I've had personally in my life. And I just think that that little dog, Chloe, Nicole was her person. And, you know, through circumstance, they were parted, but Chloe had picked her and I feel like fate was always going to bring them back together. So stories with that little magical element, I think really speak to me on, on, on the level of someone who believes that, you know, there are such things as canine soulmates. (laughs) (laughs) And that, um, and while that was the, the major part of, um, Chloe's Chloe Bear's story, it was in, it was an interesting story in that, um, uh, poor Nicole's dad copped once the story was well known in the local media about the repatriation. Poor Chloe's dad copped, you know, the trolling on the internet that's mm-hmm. so frequent these days. Um, so it, it's amazing that the wonderful thing about this book is though the multifaceted nature of those stories, the interactions and the peripheral things that happen, um, flesh them out and make them real. But I like your, um, fate, uh, um, you know, those stories that uh, where dogs do choose their owners in a way. Um, yeah, they, yeah they, I love them. My books always include them. Um, and probably my favourite one from this book is the story of Susie. I'm not sure if you had got to that chapter, but Susie's story is so incredible. Essentially, I can't tell you too much about it or it, it's got spoilers in it, so people really do need to read it to experience the true 
you know, astounding nature of that tale. But essentially, a couple in um, Philadelphia in the States woke up at three o'clock in the morning to find an old, emaciated, starving, injured dog sitting in their kitchen. Um, and all their doors were, and windows were locked and they had no clue as to how she'd got into their house. So the rest of the tale is pretty amazing, but suffice it to say that dog, Susie, is still with them and she now has an incredible social media presence. <laughs> and through um, her story being made public, um, at least I believe the last count was something like 100 or 150 adoptions of senior pets have been directly attributed to people who followed Susie's story. Um, but if she'd gone into any other house that night, if any other couple had found her in their kitchen at 3am, that story wouldn't have unfolded the way it did. So, you know, you talk about fate and the dog choosing the right people and Susie absolutely chose the right people that night. And while, while most of the stories uh, have to do with dogs that have, you know, had their whole life with um, particular people, that uh, component of uh, senior adoption, um, it is a, it's a, a feature of a number of the stories. And, um, and in the real world, you know, in general veterinary practice, we're seeing more and more of that where people are avoiding the, the um, hard work of puppyhood and, and accepting some of the nature of senior dogs and, and giving them the last few years of their lives in a loving environment. Oh, that's amazing. I'm so happy to hear you say that because, you know, in the writing of this book and in just, you know, my general contact with the kind of quote-unquote dog world, I hear a lot of stories that are the opposite to that. I mean, I know a lot of people who work in rescue and I'm forever hearing tales of, people that have taken their old dog to the vet and asked the vet to, to euthanize it, not because there's anything wrong with it, but just because it's old and they don't want it anymore. And I just, that breaks my heart. So I'm so glad to hear that, that the tide is turning in that respect. That's wonderful. And I think perhaps the pandemic has a lot to answer for um, because, you know, we all saw the stories about people rushing to adopt um, animals because we're at home more and suddenly working from home and, Senior dogs are such great work from home companions because all they want to do is curl up by your feet and snooze. Um, so hopefully that's, you know, contributed to, to some of that as well. Yes, and you mentioned, Laura, about that the dogs find the owners and I'd be interested to hear, and I think you mentioned a little bit in our last interview about how these stories or these owners and dogs found you. And I think you said last time that they, all you needed to do is a little shout out on the internet and, and they came rushing all these stories um, of amazing dogs. That's certainly part of it. Um, you know, because I have a lot of experience and contacts and whatnot in that kind of animal world and, and welfare and rescue. I know a lot of people in that kind of sphere that I can reach out to. Um, and also all my friends and family know that I'm a crazy dog lady. So whenever any kind of um, dog story goes viral on the internet, I always get tagged in it about a hundred times, <laughs> um, yes. which I really appreciate because, you know, it's wonderful to see those stories. But yeah, there's a certain element of fate or destiny in it as well for me, I guess, when I'm researching, looking for stories for the book, because I do tend to just start seeing them everywhere. So I'd never really paid much attention to stories of 
seen your dogs doing amazing things prior to starting to write this book. And then all of a sudden they were all I saw everywhere I turned. And a similar thing's happening now because I'm starting work on my next book, which is about dogs that are friends with animals of other species. And all of a sudden I'm seeing those stories everywhere. So it's like the universe kind of delivers <laughs> in a sense when I need it most, which is lovely. Now you just need to sit down and write, Laura. You need to sit down and write. Now, um, in part of your bio, I just be, um, it mentions that you and I haven't. I must admit, I have have not read any of them. Three romantic comedy novels, and can you tell me a little bit about them? And are there any dogs in them? There's dogs in all of them. Um, they're not as about dogs as my nonfiction books are, obviously. But, yes, they all have an extensive supporting cast of canine characters. So the first one is called Be My Baby, and that was published in 2014, I think. Gosh, I'm losing track now. Um, And the heroine of that story has a very cheeky Boston terrier named Nui. Um, who hates her boyfriend. And I love, <laughs> I, I love that little aspect of his personality because one of my dogs, Tex, <clears throat> excuse me, so sorry, I'm just getting over a cold and I keep coughing. Hopefully you can cut that out. <laughs> um, so hates her boyfriend. And, yeah, my old boy, Tex, is very particular about who he likes and there are definitely people that he doesn't like and he will take himself out of the house if those people come over until they leave. And I just, I, I just love that <laughs> that aspect of his personality. So I definitely wanted to write a canine character that did that as well. And then my second novel is called The X Factor, the E X Factor. And the heroine of that one, the heroine of that one is a trainer, a dog trainer for film and television. And she also has about five rescue dogs of her own. And then my my most recent novel is called Two Weeks Till Christmas and my the heroine and hero in that one are both vets um, who both have dogs. But very silly of me, I made them both equine vets <laughs> and I don't know why I did that. I mean, sometimes characters just take on a life of their own, but I know nothing about horses. <laughs> I've never had any experience with horses and all of a sudden I had to, you know, know everything about horse illnesses and <laughs> all these kinds of things and Fortunately, I have an old school friend who's a very well-respected equine vet, so I managed to um, hit him up for some, uh, you know, industry inside information, which was very lucky. Otherwise, I would have been in a real spot. (laughs) Yes. Um, Well, maybe I should look up two weeks to Christmas, um, Laura, and have a bit of a look at that. Um, But it's been wrong, though. (laughs) (laughs) It's in so many ways, Brendan. About time. <laughs> yes. Two weeks. yes, it is. And um, Laura, it's been wonderful catching up with you again. And it's always great to listen and read your books. And um, it is a, a wonderful, perfect timing, I think, this book for for the for this year that we've had in 2020. So it's a it's a great book to add to the Christmas list if if somebody's looking for something that can be. And they're an animal lover, even even if they're not an animal lover, and it's something that's very uplifting, and it just makes you, it just makes you feel good, doesn't it, Mark? Um, reading through these chapters, certainly had that effect on me, Brendan. <laughs> Thank you, Laura, and um, we look forward to interviewing you 
when you have your next book, which does it have a title yet? It does, yes. The working title, which will probably end up being the actual title, is um, A Dog's Best Friend. So it's going to be a very uplifting, very joyful one. Excellent. Well, we will talk to you again, hopefully in 12 months, if not before, depending on how quickly you get that one written. Thanks, Laura. Thanks so much for having me again. Well, there you go. That was great to chat with Laura, Mark, and um, it's always good to get special guests on, and it's a few that we've said we've been planning to get on um, our show, our little podcast, Mark, but then we've got to get off the chair and get out there and interview them as well. But it's, um, I think that's a great little book to get for Christmas or any time, um, nice and uplifting and something that we need during these these times, don't you think, Mark? I in, it definitely do, Brendan. I think it. First of all, I think uh, we do need to, um, you know, reinvigorate the podcast. Make sure we keep striking out. We've got a, a decent formula, but keep. Uh, we need to keep looking, like you said, for personalities that um, uh, you know that um, we can introduce to our wonderful audience. And um, Laura's, uh, um, I, I really enjoyed this particular. I know we've had a look at uh, one of Laura's books before, but um, this one in particular, talking about uh, age dogs, are one of my um, you know favourite parts of going to work. And so, reading these stories and uh, listening to Laura um, has been awesome. I've loved it. Absolutely. And I think with that, Mr. Outro Man's here. We'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thank you.